Book two, part three of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume five, part four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume five, by Francois René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book two, part three. On the 29th of August I went to dine at Arenenburg. Arenenburg stands on a sort of promontory in a chain of steep hills. The Queen of Holland, whom the sword had made, and whom the sword had unmade, built the chateau, or if you prefer, the summer-house of Arenenburg. From it one enjoys an extensive but melancholy view. This view commands the lower lake of Constance, which is only an expansion of the Rhine over swamped fields. On the other side of the lake one sees gloomy woods, remains of the black forest, a few white birds fluttering under a grey sky, and driven by an icy wind. There, after having sat on a throne, after being outrageously slandered, Queen Hortense came to perch upon a rock. Below is the isle of the lake on which, they say, the tomb of Charles the Fat was discovered, and on which at present canaries are dying which ask in vain for the son of their native islands. Madame la Duchesse de Saint-Lieu was better off in Rome. Nevertheless, she has not descended in proportion to her birth and her early life. On the contrary, she has risen. Her abasement is only relative to an accident of her fortune. This is not one of those descents like that of Madame la Dauphine, who has fallen from all the height of the centuries. The companions, male and female, of Madame la Duchesse de Saint-Lieu were her son, Madame Sauvage, Madame, by way of visitors, there were Madame Recamier, Monsieur Vieillard, and myself. Madame la Duchesse de Saint-Lieu acquitted herself very well in her difficult position as a queen and a demoiselle de Beauharnais. After dinner, Madame de Saint-Lieu sat down to her piano with Monsieur Cotreau, a tall young painter in moustachios, a straw hat, a blouse, a turned-down shirt-collar, an eccentric costume who hunted, painted, sang, laughed, in a witty and noisy fashion. Prince Louis occupies a summer-house standing apart, where I saw arms, topographical and strategical charts, industries which made one, as though by accident, think of the blood of the conqueror without naming him. Prince Louis is a studious and well-informed young man, full of honour and naturally grave. Madame la Duchesse de Saint-Lieu read me a few fragments of her memoirs, she showed me a cabinet filled with relics of Napoleon. I asked myself why this wardrobe left me cold, why that little hat, that sash, that uniform, worn at such and such a battle, found me so indifferent. I was much more perturbed when writing of the death of Napoleon at St. Helena. The reason of this is that Napoleon is our contemporary. We have all seen him and known him. He lives in our memory, but the hero is still too close to his glory. A thousand years hence it will be a different thing. It is only the centuries that have lent a perfume to Alexander's sweat. Let us wait. Of a conqueror, one should show only the sword. I returned to Wolfsburg with Madame Recamier and set out at night. The weather was dark and rainy. The wind whistled through the trees, and the wood-owl hooted. A real Germanian scene. Madame de Chateaubriand soon arrived at Lucerne. The dampness of the town frightened her, and... As Lugano was too dear, we decided to come to Geneva. We took our route over Sempach. 
the lake preserves the memory of a battle which ensured the enfranchisement of the swiss at a time when the nations on this side of the alps had lost their liberties beyond sempach we passed before the abbey of st urban's crumbling like all the monuments of christianity it stands in a melancholy spot on the skirt of a heath which leads to a wood if i had been free and alone i would have asked the monks for a hole in their walls there to finish my memoirs beside an owl then i should have gone to end my days in doing nothing under the beautiful do-nothing sun of naples or palermo but beautiful countries in springtime have become insults disasters and regrets on reaching Bern, we were told that there was a great revolution in progress in the city i looked in vain the streets were deserted silence reigned the terrible revolution was realized without a word to the peaceful smoke of a pipe in the corner of some coffee-house madame Ricamier was not long in joining us at geneva geneva end of september eighteen thirty two i have begun to take up my work again seriously i write in the morning and walk in the evening yesterday i went to pay a visit to coppet the house was shut up they opened the doors for me i wandered through the deserted rooms the companion of my pilgrimage recognized all the places where she still seemed to see her friend seated at her piano or coming in or going out or talking on the terrace alongside of the gallery madame Ricamier has seen again the room which she used to occupy days gone by have come up again before her it was like a rehearsal of the scene which i described in rene i passed through the sonorous apartments where nothing was heard but the sound of my footsteps everywhere the rooms were without hangings and the spider spun its web in the abandoned couches how sweet but how rapid are the moments which brothers and sisters pass in their youthful years gathered under the wing of their old parents man's family is but of a day god's breath disperses it like a bubble the son has scarce time to know the father the father the son the brother the sister the sister the brother the oak sees its acorn shoot up around itself it is not thus with the children of men i also remembered what i said in these memoirs of my last visit to combourg before leaving for america two different worlds but connected by a common sympathy occupied madame Ricamier and myself alas each of us carries within himself one of those isolated worlds for where are the persons who have lived long enough together not to have separate memories from the chateau we entered the park the early autumn began to redden and to loosen a few leaves the wind fell by degrees and let one hear a stream that turns a mill after following the alleys along which she had been accustomed to walk with madame de stael madame Ricamier wanted to greet her ashes at some distance from the park stands a coppice mingled with taller trees and surrounded by a damp and dilapidated wall this coppice resembles those clusters of trees in the midst of plains which sportsmen call covers it is there that death has driven its prey and shut up its victims a burial place had been built beforehand in that wood to receive monsieur necker madame necker and madame de stael when the last of these arrived at the trysting place they walled up the door of the crypt the child of auguste de stael remained outside and august himself who died before his child was laid under a stone at his relation's feet on the stone are carved these words taken from scripture why seek you the living with the dead i did not go into the wood madame Ricamier alone obtained permission to enter it remaining seated on a bench before the surrounding wall i turned my back on france 
and fix my eyes now on the summit of mont blanc now on the lake of geneva the golden clouds covered the horizon behind the dark line of the jura it was as though a halo of glory were rising above a long coffin on the other side of the lake i saw lord byron's house the ridge of which was touched by a ray of the setting sun rousseau was no more there to admire that spectacle and voltaire who had also disappeared had never cared about it it was at the foot of the tomb of madame de stael that so many illustrious absentees on the same shore presented themselves to my recollection they seemed to come to seek the shade their equal to fly away into the sky with her and escort her during the night at that moment madame recamier pale and in tears came out from the funeral grove herself like a shadow if ever i have felt at one time the vanity and the verity of glory and life it was at the entrance of that silent dark unknown wood where she sleeps who had so much lustre and fame and when seeing what it is to be truly loved that same evening the day after my devotions to the dead of coppet tired of the edge of the lake i went still with madame recamier in search of less frequented walks we discovered going down the rhone a narrow gorge through which the stream flows bubbling under several mills between rocky cliffs intersected by meadows one of these meadows stretches at the foot of a hill on which a house is planted amid a cluster of elms we several times climbed and descended talking the while this narrow strip of grass which separates the boisterous stream from the silent hillock how many persons are there whom one can weary with what one has been and carry back with one on the track of one's days we spoke of those days always painful and always regretted in which the passions form the happiness and the martyrdom of youth now i am writing this page at midnight while all is at rest around me and through my window i see a few stars glimmering over the alps madame recamier is going to leave us she will return in the spring and i shall spend the winter in evoking my vanished hours in summoning them one by one before the tribunal of my reason i do not know if i shall be very impartial nor if the judge will not be too indulgent towards the culprit i shall spend next summer in the land of jean jacques god grant that i may not catch the dreamer's malady and then when autumn shall have returned we shall go to italy italian that is my eternal refrain geneva october eighteen thirty two prince louis napoleon having given me his pamphlet entitled reverie politique i wrote him this letter prince i have read attentively the little pamphlet which you were so good as to entrust to me i have jotted down as you wished a few reflections springing naturally from yours which i had already submitted to your judgment you know prince that my young king is in scotland that so long as he lives there can be no other king of france for me than he but if god in his impenetrable counsels had rejected the house of st louis if the habits of our country did not render the republican state possible there is no name which goes better with the glory of france and yours i am etc etc chateaubriand paris rue d'enfer january eighteen thirty three i had dreamt much of that approaching future which i had made for myself and which i thought so near at nightfall i used to go wandering in the windings of the arve in the direction of Saleve. one evening i saw m berrier enter he was returning from lausanne and told me of the arrest of madame la duchesse de berry he did not know any details my plans for repose were once more upset when the mother of henry v believed in her success 
she discharged me. Her misfortune destroyed her last note and recalled me to her defence. I started on the spot from Geneva after writing to the ministers. On arriving in my Rue d'Enfer, I addressed the following circular letter to the editors of the newspapers. Sir, I arrived in Paris on the 17th of this month and wrote on the 18th to Monsieur the Minister of Justice to ask if the letter which I had had the honour to send him from Geneva on the 12th for Madame la Duchesse de Berry had reached him and if he had had the goodness to forward it to Madame. I begged Monsieur the Keeper of the Seals at the same time to give me the necessary authorization to go to the Princess at Blay. Monsieur the Keeper of the Seals was so good as to reply on the 19th that he had handed my letters to the President of the Council and that I must apply to the latter. I wrote consequently on the 20th to Monsieur the Minister for War. Today, the 22nd, I receive his answer of the 21st. He regrets to be under the necessity of informing me that the government does not consider it expedient to grant my request. This decision has put an end to my applications to the authorities. I have never, sir, pretended to think myself capable of defending unaided the cause of misfortune and of France. My plan, if I had been permitted to reach the feet of the august prisoner, was to propose to her in this emergency the formation of a council of men more enlightened than myself. In addition to the honourable and distinguished persons that have already come forward, I would have taken the liberty to suggest to Madame's choice Monsieur le Marquis de Pastoret, Monsieur Lenné, Monsieur de Villers, etc., etc. Now, sir, that I am officially turned away, I return to my right as a private individual. My memoirs sur la vie et la mort de Monsieur le Duc de Berry, wrapped in the hair of the widow today a captive, lie near the heart which Louvel made to resemble even more that of Henry the Fourth. I have not forgotten that signal honour of which the present moment asks me for a reckoning, and makes me feel all the responsibility. I am, sir, etc., etc., Chateaubriand. While I was writing this circular letter to the newspapers, I found means to have the following note handed to Madame la Duchesse de Berry. Paris, 23rd November, 1832. Madame, I had the honour to address to you from Geneva an earlier letter dated the 12th of this month. This letter, in which I begged you to do me the honour to choose me as one of your defenders, has been printed in the newspapers. Your Royal Highness' cause may be taken up by all those who, without being authorised to do so, might have useful truths to make known. But, if Madame wishes that it be carried on in her own name, it is not one man, but a council of men, of politicians and lawyers, that must be charged with this high affair. In that case, I would ask that Madame would consent to assign to me as coadjutors, with the persons whom she would have already selected, Monsieur le Comte de Pastoret, Monsieur E. de Neuville, Monsieur de Villel, Monsieur Lenné, Monsieur Royer Collard, Monsieur Pardessieux, Monsieur Mondarou Vertami, Monsieur de Vaufrelon. I had also thought, Madame, that one might summon to this council a few men of great talent and of an opinion contrary to ours. But perhaps it would be to place them in a false position, to oblige them to make a sacrifice of honour and principle, to which lofty minds and upright consciences do not readily lend themselves. Chateaubriand. An old disciplined soldier, I was therefore hastening up to take my place in the ranks, and to march under my captains. Reduced by the will of the authorities to a duel, I accepted it. I had scarcely expected to come from the tomb of the husband, to fight by the tomb of the widow. Supposing that I were bound to remain alone, that I had misunderstood what suits France, 
I was none the less in the path of honour. Nor is it of little use for men that a man should immolate himself to his conscience. It is good that someone should consent to ruin himself, to remain steadfast to principles of which he is convinced, and which have to do with what is noble in our nature. Those dupes are the necessary contestants of the brutal fact, the victims charged to utter the veto of the oppressed against the triumph of might. We praise the Poles. Is their devotion other than a sacrifice? It has saved nothing. It could save nothing, even in the minds of my opponents. Will that devotion be barren of results for the human race? I prefer family before my country, they say. No. I prefer fidelity to my oaths before perjury, the moral world before material society. That is all. In so far as the family is concerned, I devote myself to it because it was essentially beneficial to France. I confound its posterity with that of the country, and when I deplore the misfortunes of the one, I deplore the disasters of the other. Beaten, I have prescribed duties to myself, even as the victors have laid interests upon themselves. I am trying to withdraw from the world with my self-respect. In solitude we have to be careful whom we choose for our companion. In France, the land of vanity, so soon as an occasion offers for making a fuss, a crowd of people seize it. Some act from good-heartedness, others from their consciousness of their own merits. I therefore had many competitors. They begged, as I had done, of Madame la Duchesse de Berry, the honour to defend her. At least my presumption in offering myself to the princess as a champion was a little justified by former services. Though I did not fling the sword of Brennus into the scale, at least I put my name there. However unimportant that may be, it had already gained some victories for the monarchy. I opened my memoirs sur la captivité de Madame la Duchesse de Berry with a consideration by which I am forcibly struck. I have often reprinted it, and it is probable that I shall reprint it again. We never cease, I said, to be astonished at events. Ever we imagine that we have come to the last. Ever the revolution recommences. Those who, since forty years, are marching to reach the goal, repine. They thought they were sitting for a few hours by the edge of their tomb. Vain hope! Time strikes those travellers gasping for breath, and forces them to move onward. How many times, since they have been on the road, has the old monarchy fallen at their feet, scarce escaped from those successive crumblings? They are obliged once more to pass over its rubbish and its dust. Which century will see the end of the movement? Providence has will that the transient generations, destined for unremembered days, should be small, in order that the damage might not be great. And so we see that everything proves abortive, that everything is inconsistent, that no one is like himself or embraces his whole destiny, that no event produces what it contained and what it ought to produce. The superior men of the age which is expiring are dying away. Will they have successors? The ruins of Palmyra end in sands. Passing from this general observation to particular facts, I show in my reasoning that they might deal with Madame la Duchesse de Berry by arbitrary measures, regarding her as a prisoner of police, of war, of state, or asking the chambers to pass a bill of attainder, that they might bring her within the competence of the laws, by applying to her the Brickfield law of exception, or the common law of the code, 
that they might regard her person as inviolable and sacred. The ministers maintained the first opinion, the men of July the second, the royalists the third. I go through the several suppositions. I prove that, if Madame la Duchesse de Berry made a descent upon France, she had been drawn thither only because she heard men's opinions asking for a different present, calling for a different future. False to its popular extraction, the revolution proceeding from the days of July repudiated glory and courted shame, except in a few hearts worthy of giving it an asylum, liberty, become the object of the derision of those who made it their rallying cry, that liberty which buffoons bandy about with kicks, that liberty strangled after dishonour by the tourniquet of the laws of exception, will, through its destruction, transform the revolution of 1830 into a cynical fraud. Thereupon, and to deliver us all, Madame la Duchesse de Berry arrived. Fortune betrayed her, a Jew sold her, a minister bought her. If they are not willing to proceed against her by police measures, the only alternative is to indict her at the Assizes. I suppose this to have been done, and I bring on the stage the Princess's defending counsel. Then, after making the defending counsel speak, I address the counsel for the prosecution. Advocate, stand up. Establish learnedly that Caroline Ferdinand of Sicily, widow de Berry, niece of the late Marie Antoinette of Austria, widow Capet, is guilty of opposition to a man, the reputed uncle and guardian of an orphan called Henry, which uncle and guardian is said, according to the calumnious allegation of the prisoner, unlawfully to detain the crown of a ward, which ward impudently pretends to have been king from the day of the abdication of the ex-king Charles X and the ex-Dauphin till the day of the election of the king of the French. In support of your argument, let the judges first call up Louis-Philippe as evidence for or against the prisoner, unless he prefer to excuse himself as a kinsman. Next, let the judges confront the prisoner and the descendant of the great traitor. Let this carry it into whom Satan had entered, say how many pieces of silver he received for the bargain. Then it will be proved by those who have examined the spot that the prisoner for six hours suffered the Gehenna of fire in a space too narrow for her, in which four people could hardly breathe, which caused the tortured person contumeliously to say that they were making war upon her as though she were St. Lawrence. Now Caroline Ferdinand, being pressed by her accomplices against the red-hot slab, her clothes twice caught fire, and at each blow of the gendarme on the outside of the fiery furnace, the shock was communicated to the prisoner's heart, causing her to vomit blood. Next, in the presence of the image of Christ, they will lay on the desk, as a piece of direct evidence, the burnt garments, for there must always be lots cast upon garments in these Judas bargains. Madame la Duchesse de Berry was set at liberty by an arbitrary act of the authorities, after they thought that they had dishonoured her. The picture which I drew of the proceedings made Philip see the invidiousness of a public trial, and determined him to grant a pardon to which he believed that he had attached a punishment. The pagans, under Severus, used to throw to the lions a newly delivered young Christian woman. My pamphlet, of which only some phrases survive, had its important historical result. I melted again as I copy out the apostrophe which ends my work. It is, I admit, a foolish waste of tears. Illustrious captive of Blay, madame, may your heroic presence in a land which knows something of heroism 
lead france to repeat to you what my political independence has won for me the right to say madame your son is my king if providence inflict yet a few hours upon me shall i behold your triumphs after having had the honour of embracing your adversities shall i receive that guerdon of my faith at the moment when you return happy i would joyfully go to end in retirement the days commenced in exile alas i am disconsolate to be able to do nothing for your present destinies my words die away in a mere waste around the walls of your prison the noise of the winds of the waves and of men at the foot of the lonely fortress will not even allow the last accents of a faithful voice to ascend to where you are paris march eighteen thirty three some newspapers having repeated the phrase madame your son is my king were indicted in the courts for a press offence i found myself involved in the proceedings this time i could not take exception to the competency of the judges i had to try to save by my presence the men attacked for my sake my honour was at stake and i had to answer for my works moreover the day before my summons before the court the monitor had given the declaration of madame la duchesse de berry if i had stayed away they would have thought that the royalist party was retreating that it was abandoning misfortune and blushing for the princess whose heroism it had celebrated there was no lack of timid counsellors who said to me do not put in an appearance you will be too much embarrassed with your phrase madame your son is my king i shall shout it louder than ever i replied i went to the very court where the revolutionary tribunal had formerly been installed where marie antoinette had appeared where my brother had been condemned the revolution of july has ordered the removal of the crucifix whose presence while consoling innocence caused the judge to tremble my appearance before the judges had a fortunate effect it counterbalanced for a moment the effect of the declaration in the monitor and maintained the mother of henry v in the rank in which her courageous adventure had placed her men hesitated when they saw that the royalist party dared to face the event and did not consider itself beaten i did not want to counsel but m le Drew, who had attached himself to me at the time of my imprisonment wished to speak he grew disconcerted and gave me great uneasiness m beret who represented the quotidien indirectly took up my defence at the end of the proceedings i called the jury the universal peerage which contributed not a little towards the acquittal of all of us nothing remarkable occurred to signalize this trial in the terrible chamber that had resounded with the voices of fouquier tinville and danton there was nothing amusing in it except the arguments of m Persil. wishing to prove my guilt he quoted this phrase from my pamphlet it is difficult to crush what flattens itself underfoot and exclaiming do you feel gentlemen all the scorn comprised in that paragraph it is difficult to crush what flattens itself underfoot he made the movement of a man who crushes something under his feet he resumed his speech triumphantly the laughter of the audience was renewed the worthy man perceived neither the delight of the audience at his unlucky phrase nor the perfectly absurd figure which he cut while stamping his feet in his black robes as though he were dancing at the same time that his face was pale with inspiration and his eyes haggard with eloquence when the jury returned and pronounced their verdict of not guilty applause broke out and i was surrounded by young men who had put on barristers robes to get in m carrel was there the crowd increased as i went out 
There was a scuffle in the courtyard of the palace between my escort and the police. At last I succeeded with great difficulty in reaching home, in the midst of the crowd which followed my cab, shouting, Long live Chateaubriand! At any other time this acquittal would have been very significant. To declare that it was not guilty to say to the Duchesse de Berry, Madame, your son is my king, was to condemn the Revolution of July. But to-day this verdict means nothing, because there is no opinion nor duration in anything. In four-and-twenty hours everything is changed. I should be condemned to-morrow for the fact on which I was acquitted to-day. I had been to leave my card on the juryman and notably on Monsieur Chevet, one of the members of the Universal Peerage. It was easier for that worthy citizen to find a conscientious verdict in my favour than it would have been for me to find in my pocket the money necessary to add to the happiness of my acquittal the pleasure of eating a good dinner at my judge's establishment. Monsieur Chevet arbitrated with more equity on the legitimacy, the usurpation and the author of the Genie du Christianisme than many publicists and censors. Paris, April 1833. The Memoirs sur la Captivité de Madame la Duchesse de Berry has obtained for me an immense popularity in the Royalist Party. Deputations and letters have reached me from every quarter. I have received from the north and south of France declarations of adhesion covered with many thousands of signatures. All of these, referring to my pamphlet, demand the liberation of Madame la Duchesse de Berry. Fifteen hundred young men of Paris have come to congratulate me not without great excitement on the part of the police. I have received a cup in silver gilt, with this inscription, to Chateaubriand from the loyal men of Villeneuve, Lot et Gaon. A town in the south sent me some very good wine to fill this cup, but I do not drink. Lastly, Legitimist France has taken as its motto the words, Madame, your son is my king, and several newspapers have adopted them as an epigraph. They have been engraved on necklaces and rings. I am the first to have uttered, in the face of the usurpation, a truth which no one dared to speak, and, strange to say, I believe less in the return of Henry V than the most contemptible juste milieu man or the most violent republican. For the rest, I do not understand the word usurpation in the narrow sense given to it by the Royalist Party. There would be many things to say about this word as about that of legitimacy, but there really is usurpation, and usurpation of the worst kind, in the guardian who plunders his ward and prescribes the orphan. All those grand phrases, that the country had to be saved, are so many pretexts furnished to ambition by an immoral policy. Truly, ought we not to regard the meanness of your usurpation as an effort of virtue on your part? Are you Brutus, by chance, sacrificing his sons to the greatness of Rome? I have been able in the course of my life to compare literary renown and popularity. The former pleased me for a few hours, but that love of renown soon passed. As for popularity, it found me indifferent, because, in the revolution, I have seen too much of men surrounded by those masses which, after raising them on the shield, flung them into the gutter. A democrat by nature, an aristocrat by habit, I would most gladly sacrifice my fortune and my life to the people, provided I need have little relation with the crowd. Anyhow, I was extremely sensible of the impulse of the young men of July, who carried me in triumph to the chamber of peers, and this inasmuch as they did not carry me there to be their leader, or because I thought as they did, they were only doing justice to an enemy. They recognised in me a man of honour and liberty. That generosity touched me. But this other popularity, which I have lately acquired in my own party, has caused me no emotion. 
There is an icy barrier between the royalists and myself. We want the same king. With that exception, most of our wishes are opposed one to the other. End of Book 2, Part 3